We're constantly filling up our day, constantly filling up our work, constantly filling up our companies with stuff so that we don't create the space for discomfort. But actually in the space for discomfort, which we might also cause pause, actually is our opportunity for creative response, is our opportunity for thinking about what may come next. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I am pleased and I am delighted to have another fascinating conversation with Ben Johnson. Before we get into this conversation, I have a favor. If you have been enjoying the shows, the conversations, I would really appreciate it if you can take five minutes and head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review. The reviews help me know that you're enjoying the shows and it also helps bring wonderful guests to the show so we can have more deep and insightful conversations on having a happy and thriving relationship with money and so many more topics that we discuss on this podcast. Also, if you could send your favorite episode to friend, family, or colleague, someone you think who will enjoy the conversation, I would appreciate that. If you're enjoying these conversations about our relationships with money, the emotions attached to our money, and the conversations that help us make sense of our money stories, then I highly suggest you come to Denver, Colorado on October 5th to 8th for the Financial Therapy Association's annual conference. This is a conference that is going to focus on the deeper conversations around money and meaning. It's a boutique conference that will give you the opportunity to think deeper about your relationship with money. You can head over to financialtherapyassociation.org to get your ticket. I look forward to seeing you there. So Ben Johnson is our guest. Ben helps a growing community of agitators, innovators, and marketing misfits to transform their organizations, create positive impact, and to create useful companies. Ben is also the host of the podcast called Peripheral Thinking. He's got a wonderful blog with very insightful posts around mindfulness and money and making sense of the two. He also has a YouTube channel and Ben's focus is to help inspire you with ideas and thinking from the periphery, be it ancient wisdom, indigenous thought, Eastern philosophy, storytelling, and or contemporary understanding of the mind and science. You will be able to tell through my conversation with Ben, he is an insightful individual who takes the time to slow down and take notice in his life. This is a common theme you'll hear through the conversation, and I think it's so applicable to all of us as we start to try and make sense of our relationships with money and our money story is slowing down and taking notice. Try to prevent ourselves from always reacting. You'll hear Ben talk about the value of creating a space by pausing 
and actually sitting with that discomfort that usually follows a pause. Often, and I know I speak from experience, we are afraid of that discomfort when we pause. So we open our mouths or we start to do something else to avoid that discomfort. You'll hear Ben speak of the learnings that he has found in his life, his money story, when he embraces that pause. Ben goes on to share how pausing during times of chaos, times of ending in his life, have really helped him learn some of life's greatest lessons as he paused before starting a new beginning. Again, it's that idea of sitting in this discomfort of an ending and a beginning where the messiness lies, but also some of our greatest life lessons can be found and created. We talk about the significance of work, sex, money, and dharma. Yes, that's right. The significance of work, sex, money, and dharma. You need to listen to the episode to understand what I mean. And Ben also offers up this idea or this question for us to ponder. If Buddha was your business partner, or if Buddha was your personal consultant, what would change in your story? As he attempts to answer his four-year-old's incredibly powerful question, why do you work? He has uncovered many golden reasons. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Ben Johnson. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Today, my guest is Ben Johnson. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you, Sean. I heard about you on Mark Analiski's podcast. We were just chatting about Mark. I admire Mark for his deep, I'll say love, for understanding the role money plays in our individual lives and greater society. And so I thought it would be great to get you on the podcast because I felt like a lot of what you talked about really resonated with how my podcast focuses on our relationship with money. What does this money mean to us in context to our overall money stories? And I thought we would start with what the researchers call financial flashpoints, which are basically emotionally charged or reflective incidents or several of them that cause us to think and feel a little differently about money. I want to ask a question about someone who I feel might be a quite curious person in your life, perhaps you would say even a profound person who asked you a question that caused you to think deeply in a profound manner when your your son asked you, Daddy, why do you work? What (laughs) significance did this question have on you? Mm, Yeah, brilliant question, Sean. Uh, As was that. That was also a brilliant question. And I was talking about this actually, again, just the other day. So my son is now 10. uh, No, sorry, he's 11 now. And so he asked that question when he was four. So yeah, so in the way, you know, curious four-year-old. Four-year-olds are, of course, naturally still beautifully naturally curious. It's all about questions. It's all about trying to piece together the world. It's all about trying to understand what is what is going on. And, you know, they like playing and they like contact. And I was always been very lucky. So quite present, quite at home, even when I was running my last business. A lot of it. So I was at home. So, you know, good, close relationship with, with him, which I was really, really grateful for. Anyway, in that sort of incredibly disarming way that children can do, he asked me, full of curiosity, you know, Daddy, why do you work? 
it really kind of hit me like a train in a way because I realized I'd never actually paused to think about it. Now that in many ways sounds ridiculous because when you say to people, why do you work? People typically will say, oh, for money. Of course, some of it is for money, right? We do need money to function in the world, to engage. It's, you know, how we interact. It's how we transact. Of course, it has a hugely important function. We need it to, we exchange it for food. We exchange it for roofs, all of these sorts of things. So clearly money is important. But the thing that struck me when he was answering the question is that's as far as we ever really get oftentimes. We think, you know, why do you work? Oh, for money. And then it was this realization, really? Really? Is that all? <laughs> is that really the reason, the only reason that we are working? Because, of course, it's not when you then think about it. And it was only in him asking the question which caused me to think about it. You know, we work for myriad reasons. We work to connect. We work to feel belonging. We work to contribute. We work to be seen, to be heard, to feel valued, to feel important. You know, all of these things, which are sort of hugely important kind of emotional, personal kind of drivers, our, our opportunity to kind of live and be seen and be part of. That actually is what really the stuff of work is, you know. I also think, like, if you kind of think about, again, so kind of kids, you look at the, how they behave in the playground. And the playground is just the kind of training for the work ground. A lot of those same sorts of things happen. And so, yeah, so I think that for me, that question around why do you work, it really just went to the very, very heart of sort of so much because it was the invitation to look beyond money and to understand work was a much bigger expression and manifestation of what we do than maybe I'd given credit for before that. I appreciate that answer and so many, so many different doors we can go with that. I love just the the curiosity that children cultivate and how as fathers we can learn so much from their curiosity. I want to touch on, like you said, it's the deeper level. And it's such a profound question. And when I read that, if we're busy being busyness of life and working and running through, I mean, that question just bounces off. I work for money. But I love your idea of sitting with it and just actually looking down below. And I think many of us would have that same response. It's like, whoa, how have I not asked? Why did it take a four-year-old to get me to this point? <laughs> So it sounds like you're saying that at least at your experience and what you've observed, there's this deeper desire to be seen, to be valued, to be significant, to be connected with other people. I also was reading in your story when you're running your company Free State mm -hmm. that it sounded like you had optimal opportunities to be seen, to be validated, to be recognized, to be significant as you were traveling around the world, I believe, at exotic locations, first-class flights. It would look like that you were getting these deeper levels of connections, but yet in your ebook, you say that it wasn't me. Can you explain of perhaps yourself and I feel others might we get lost in looking for this validation in the wrong places? And how did that happen with you at Free State? Yeah, I think that, like, particularly taking the the travel thing, right? So I do remember, I referenced that in the ebook because I sort of remember having another conversation with somebody about that. And we were talking, I think I was about to go on a trip to Tokyo. I live in the UK. And so about to go on a trip to Tokyo, which, you know, also was kind of very cool. Go to Japan, do some work. And whenever when I'd go there, I'd always take some time and go down to Kyoto, which is incredibly beautiful and kind of amazing spiritual place as well. So it's all like, you know, it's really, it's fantastic. It's really sort of exciting. 
But I also then was, we were talking about the getting there. And I realized actually there was a little bit of me which did like the fact that I was flying there in business class or first class, whatever it was. And that also gave me pause to reflect, hold on, what actually is the important part here? What am I doing? What is my motivation? What's actually sort of compelling me to do something? Because I realized there was a little bit of me, which was enjoying the kind of flying first class, flying business class. Yes, it's comfortable. It's a good way to travel 14 hours. There's no doubt about that. But also there's the little bit of signal in it. There's a signal in it that somehow I am succeeding. Somehow I am doing well. And I think the feeling for me a little bit was I was kind of hiding behind those things a little bit. That, that Like I said, that they were somehow they were signals, which was sort saying to the world, Ben is successful. Because look, he flies around the world to these amazing places. He's successful. Look at him. Isn't he doing well? And I think that there was a little bit of me, which again, only when I kind of had sort of pause to think about it and reflect back, hold on, is that part of what my motivation is? And if that is part of my motivation, is that really what I'm actually motivated by? And I think that there was, you know, that was some of the transition that was going on at that time. As we speak about our relationship with money and our desire to be seen and heard and like, you know, feeling good being on that plane and people might post it on social media to be like, oh, look at this, <laughs> look at this meal. But they happen to take a seat, picture of their like bed, their bed <laughs> yeah. at first class, yeah. just like, oh yeah. And I happen to be flying first class. But I heard you say quite a bit, like say we're getting in this experience, I'm posting on social media, maybe not you, these experiences that feel good, but unconsciously, we don't really know what they're going on. But you talked about taking time to pause quite a bit in mm. both of your stories. And as your career has transitioned and work, your definition and what work means to you, I feel has transitioned. What value has learning to cultivate these opportunities to pause created in your relationship with money and just your overall life story? This idea about learning to pause and the importance of a pause, it's interesting actually kind of when you put that, because then I can, I see back number of sort of a number of instances where that has kind of manifest. And so I guess one of the first things, so round about 2000, I can't remember. So Quite some time into running my last business, we were in the middle of you know a lot of stuff, which kind of outwardly again very so commercially very successful, doing very well, all of this flying around the world, all those sorts of things. And I went and did an introduction to meditation class where I live. I live on the south coast of the UK. I went and did an introduction to meditation class, and it was like an eight week thing, one of those you know every Tuesday night something to that effect. And I remember actually after the first lesson, almost the first lesson, I remember having this really strong feeling that actually there was something incredibly transformative and or powerful, almost to the extent of feeling a little, actually quite a bit, you know, discombobulated by it, but a little bit sort of thrown, a little bit like, oh shit, there's something that feels a bit uncomfortably transformative about this. Again, this is just after one second. It's not because I had some sort of mystical experience. There's nothing like that at all. I was literally just being taught to follow my breath. But it was in thinking about it, it was very clear to me that there was something very powerful about this kind of practice. But like I said, that was not because in any way anything happened. It was just like a feeling. And I think from that point forward, like one of the things around that, like I remember... 
going into the office like a day or two afterwards. And it was one of the first times. So I was in like then a, a kind of management or a team meeting. And because we'd had this sort of this, this teaching around meditation, we'd been talking, one of the things we'd been talking about in the meditation was kind of learning to kind of track the emotions in your body before you react to them, right? And this has been like, you know, quite a sort of novel idea for me. Like I was very, very driven, very motivated. A lot of work was just about getting stuff done and doing it now and all the rest of it. Whereas it was in a kind of meeting with, 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 with management and we were talking about something in it, which was a little bit contentious. I can't remember what it was. And I remember kind of sitting there and feeling like the tension kind of bubbling in me and not responding to it, right? Which is probably one of the first times, because the first time I'd ever been aware of that. So to this point around pause, that was a very kind of tangible, visceral kind of experience of feeling the benefit of pausing, right? So that that was kind of very unknown. And so it, that really kind of flourished, that really grew. So both in a kind of day-to-day, how I was functioning, how I was reacting, how I was responding, how I was leading, how I was making decisions about what I was doing, kind of a meditative practice was increasingly important. And like I said, that would kind of manifest day-to-day just in how I was functioning to a greater or lesser degree. Let's not pretend I am any sort of have any kind of enlightened status. Clearly, I react just like as much as the next person as well. But it was getting a little bit of an insight that actually there is this opportunity to pause. There is this opportunity to respond. And so that, it was kind of, it was turning up a little bit for myself on that that kind of day-to-day way. But it clearly, it was also turning up in the work that we were doing. So I remember having a conversation with one of the board directors of Nokia, right? So you may remember Nokia. They used to make phones before the world was owned by Apple and Samsung. Now, the interesting thing was kind of going on for them because they were basically completely screwed because in the olden days, before these things, before a phone also took pictures, which of course was the first great big leap forward, Nokia sold all of the phones in the world, right? They completely owned the whole of the phone market, but they basically, then Apple came along, so this is before iPhone was really a big thing, and they put cameras on the phone. Right. And Nokia didn't do that. Right. And so Nokia was having gone from completely owning the whole of the telecommunications world was relegated to a bit part player almost overnight. My company, we were also working with Samsung at quite a quite a senior level in out of the headquarters in Korea. And I remember having this conversation with one of the directors of Nokia about about how they might compete. The Samsung. And one of the extraordinary things, I don't know if you've spent much time working with any of those kind of big Asian powerhouses, is the speed at which they do things, right? They are they are doing, 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 and not really thinking. Okay, I'm mean, I massively oversimplified. But I remember having this conversation with the director saying that actually he was asking what we thought that they should do to better compete with Samsung. And I remember saying to him, actually, the thing that you could do most of it is pause. Just pause, go slow, give yourself an opportunity to reflect, create some space for some discomfort to fall into. Because that's the thing that we're constantly doing. We're constantly filling up our day, constantly filling up our work, constantly filling up our companies with stuff so that we don't create the space for discomfort. But actually in the space for discomfort, which we might also cause pause, actually is our opportunity for creative response, is our opportunity for thinking about what may come next. And so this idea of pause was becoming increasingly important for how I function in my day-to-day, but was also then becoming an idea, which I guess I'm only making that connection now as a consequence of your, your questions, 
was also something that I was then trying to get some of the biggest companies in the world to also engage with. Because I think it is something we can all benefit from, but it's also something that we all very keen to, to avoid because it's discomfort. Thank you. That spoke to me on deep personal side or of my story is that, <laughs> oh, I feel like the busyness, I wore that like a badge of honor. Uh, mm-hmm, yeah. Anything to avoid that discomfort, which at the time I didn't, re- I thought it was like, this rise and grind culture of do more, go, 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 go. Soon as I would slow down, it'd be like, start a new course, do this, do this. And yeah, I've been with you there. I've been yeah. with you there 100%. And you know, the, the interesting part for me is this whole podcast is, I think, a huge pausing opportunity for me with around our relationships with money because there's, at least for me, and, and I, if you look at the research, which there's Actually, a lot of fascinating research around our money stories, but our money indirectly and directly impacts almost all aspects of our lives. And for me, that relentless go, go, go was impacted by money because for me, I attached power and prestige to money. So I yep. wanted more of that, that validation, put it in externals, looking for it with money instead of myself. So your answer really speaks to, to, to me personally in my journey. But this idea of pausing, I think it's just so important so that we can start to understand ourselves. But I like your part where you talk about the creativity in it. And I actually, in preparing for this, I pulled a quote and I Googled it and it didn't come up, but I know it's a quote from someone. So I can't refer who it is. Maybe it was made up quote because the Google didn't say anything, but it was sometimes your greatest hopes are destroyed as they are preparing you for something even greater. And the reason why I popped that up is because it's around new beginnings and endings. Mm-hmm. And in this idea of pausing, I feel like that's where we can be, to use the word you said, creative, to recognize maybe this is an ending and there's a new beginning on the horizon. And we'll, I'm sure we'll get into the influence Buddha has had on your work mm-hmm. with, around mm-hmm. your ebook. But Buddha even talks about how endings are making room for new beginnings. And I like how he speaks to the really, they're, they're really interconnected and there's always this causal relationship with them. So speaking about endings, which we might be able to realize because of these pauses, Nokia, unfortunately, wasn't able to realize the mm-hmm. ending of no mm-hmm. camera phone. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of endings where sometimes it might feel like when we pause that our hopes are being destroyed, but endings are profound parts of our stories, our money stories. I want to know in this idea of pausing endings and chaos, what role has chaos played in your life around endings and new beginnings? And, and what have you learned from maybe pausing to embrace that chaos? So, I mean, let's be clear. Nobody likes the chaos. <laughs> <laughs> the most fearful place ever. <laughs> yeah. So let's be honest. We don't like endings. In fact, I was talking to somebody about this just earlier today. We don't like endings and kind of culturally, right? Endings are like scrubbed from the kind of playbook. We don't talk about them. We don't talk about, you know, I know we're not talking about that, but we don't really talk about dying well in our culture. And, you know, so, you know at the most kind of profound level, i.e. at the actual kind of dying level, we don't talk about that. We kind of avoid it. We lock dying away. Dying is something that we just, we are moving away from, right? So that's at its most extreme, at its most important, and at its genuinely most profound, right? But I think it's an indication, actually, of how we are with endings. We just don't like them because, you know, one of the quirks of the human mind is it holds on, 
right? You know, we're like, we're holding on machines, aren't we? So we see this in our work. We add, we're really good at adding, but we're terrible at letting go of things because letting go is a fearful thing because we don't, you know, we're scared of us and all of these, these types of things. So ending things is, you know, whatever the circumstances, whatever the context, ending things is tremendously difficult. And this is really true for me too. So the, the, the thing which was coming up when you were talking is I remember after, so with, with the last company, the main company I was running, Company Free State, we sold that, I was bought out and then kind of removed and the kind of process of sort of stepping out of the business. I'd been trying to get out of the business for a long time anyway. So it was by all measures, right? A welcome thing. It was some money involved. It was, I'm trying to get out of it. But actually the day, you know, so we'd been acquired by a bigger company and there was a bit of a transition period after the accident before I'd left. But then on the day, there was a day, right? Where my line was done. My email was turned off, right? Because it it was a, a new company that had taken over. So one day, then I woke up, right? There's no emails. There's nothing, right? And lots of people say, oh, that sounds brilliant. But actually, that is massively destabilized. So all of the things which you're kind of used to, all the things that you're familiar with are gone, right? There had been a very, very significant ending. And like I said, even though I had been trying to work out how to exit my company for a very, very long time, like many, many years, really, with a kind of different levels of kind of awareness. But I'd really been trying to get out for a very long time. So there was nothing problematic around that. But actually, the reality of being thrown into a context where all of the familiar sort of stuff of the day was gone, right? Which, you know, talk about like the emails going just as one example. But everything else I'd been thinking about, because I'd spent, you know, I'd run it. I was the managing director. I'd looked after all of the commercial side of what we were doing. You know, I'd spent many, many years essentially being programmed to scan for problems, which is essentially, you know, what running a business is like. I'm scanning for problems, constantly scanning for problems. And so when that's taken away from you, of course, all of that old habit behavior continues, right? And it continues like that goes at its own pace. So there's no wish to say, well, I've, I've ended that chapter. So I'd like all of that to go away, then I can be kind of free to just sort of create some new new beginning. Of course, it's tremendously messy. It's full of anxiety. It's really uncomfortable. I'm talking to you from my office here. And I remember there was one point, probably, I don't know, like six months or so after that business had ended. And I was, you know, in this kind of business. I remember I was actually lying on the floor of my office here, sort of, you can't see, I'm sort of pointing to it, got my desk here. There was a point I was lying on the floor and I remember sort of reflecting on myself, like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm actually <laughs> lying on the floor. And, you know, so clearly I was like in some sort of, you know, very kind of destabilized, sort of unsure place. So that that's kind of what ending did. So that's a lot of chaos in there, right? There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, I was kind of making almost like a glib reference to creativity. It is a creative thing. But if you'd asked me at the time, oh, does this feel creative? Like, no, mm -hmm. <laughs> nothing about this feels creative in any way. It just feels destabilizing. It feels uncertain. It feels uncomfortable. I, you know, have no sort of feeling for what the road ahead looks like. And so I guess the, you know, the, the act of creativity, the act of new things bubbling up is something over which we don't really have control. You know, that chaos is an inherently creative place, but that doesn't mean in any way that it's comfortable. And it certainly doesn't mean that it's, it's something that we have massive control over.
you know, at its best, it then became a period of experimentation and some things working and some things not working and actually just a slow and iterative journey. In fact, one of the ways to think about it sort of sits, it, it was almost like the ending kind of was like a plunge into a crevasse, you know what I mean, by like sort of crevasse in the mountains. What happened, the, the kind of creativity, the change that came was this slow little thing where I was like pulling myself out of this crevasse. And what happened, you know, first of all, I kind of, with trying little projects, I threw the ice axe a little bit of the way, it just had a little bit of a pull. And I was just like getting some kind of momentum. And as I started to get more comfortable, as I started to get more at ease with the kind of changing context, I then became more comfortable kind of throwing the ice axe even further forward. So I started to kind of pull myself more and more out. But actually, at its heart, was a deeply destabilized, deeply uncertain context, which, yes, is the source of creativity, but it, nothing felt fluffy or warm about that time. I love that answer. You just speak to the human condition of like, this is all one big scary journey and there's no Hollywood storytelling thing of like, I appreciate that because I feel like sometimes we romanticize like saving up enough money and quitting our jobs and liberating ourselves from the chains of corporate. You know, there's some truth to that, but we are such story making machines that cling to stories and ending that our existing identity or story, it's debilitating. We end up on the floor of our office. Mm. And you make me think of this, this idea when you're talking about climbing up and the change is slow because a lot of what I'm starting to look at around the relationship with money is not this primary change of like save more money. It's like that secondary mm. deep climbing up that takes a long time where it's perspective changing. And so your story reminds me of this. Someone once told me that Mountains are so strong and beautiful, but there's no mountain without an earthquake and the messiness that comes along with it. And your story really made me think of that. Embracing this scary, fearful, messiness part of life that has us questioning ourselves, lying on our our floors. In hindsight, or looking back on that time, has that allowed you to be more, maybe not resilient, acceptance of chaos or change as you move forward? Has it helped a little bit or is it still that same lay on the floor feeling? I think I probably have a kind of renewed awareness or renewed understanding that in a way we have very little control over those things. Yeah. So if you're in a kind of time flux, because of course the flux moment could come at any point, right? It might be a relatively planned thing. I've been saving up for a point of breaking free of the shackles of corporate life or, you know, working to a point where I can be bought out of my company, which feels kind of planned and predictable. Mm. But even that, you know, like we're talking about, could still then, you know, the change, of course, can throw you into the, into the sort of, into the chaos. But of course, the moment could equally come through an unplanned thing, through health or whatever it might be. And, and I guess the, the thing is, what I do have is, is an awareness that in a way, one of the learnings, I guess, and I don't know, I guess it will be interesting to see when this is road tested in the next chaos moment. <laughs> but in a way, one of the, not, not a moment that I look forward to, I think it's probably, a, you know, also, but, you know, do I look forward to the next chaos moment? No, not in the slightest. Do I know that another one will come? Yeah, it will. Does that annoy me? Yeah, for sure. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather it kind of does, it didn't. And, and I think the, it's kind of knowing that we have very little control over, almost anything actually and it's just that kind of practice of in the end i will respond to the conditions i know i've come through it before 
this was a, a feature in running the company. Of course, like, you know, everything. Running the company, there were peaks, there were troughs. And one of the things that happened with the benefit of experience was knowing that there were peaks and troughs. So knowing that when things were up, okay, there was going to be a point when we had a dip and knowing when we were in a dip, kind of giving yourself a moment's pause and to go, oh, hold on, we're in a dip. We've been in a dip before we did X, Y, Z, and that made it better. So I think in the same way that became a feature of running the company, the same thing, I guess, should be true. The next time I find myself in the bottom of a kind of chaos pit, there will be a point where I go, hold on, I've been here before. I know that it changes. I know it moves on. And then maybe at a point of objectivity or calm, I go, okay, what did I do last time? What were my little actions with the ice axe? What did, how did I do the thing? And so there will be some inherent learning sort of which exists that means I will have a way of responding to the big chaos things in a slightly more aware way. That's all I can hope for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like you say the word hope at the end is is that now you have hope and belief that, hey, I can get out of that crevasse, that that change period. And I think that that's in, in, insightful for all of us to know that when we're in the, the crevasse or those <laughs> down underneath the desk, as bad as it feels, as hard and difficult and as scary it's knowing there's that shedding of an old story for a new one. And sometimes that could be quite, we just look at things with a new lens. And and that's where earlier I started at this talk, talking about these financial flashpoints. So it's like emotionally driven financial circumstances that impact how we think and feel about money. I understand you had a, another, maybe it was financial flashpoint, maybe not, but when your relationship with money continued to evolve, perhaps an inflection point when you took a course called Work, Sex, Money, and Dharma. Mm, Maybe can you speak to what, first off, what was the motivating, (laughs) looking back now, you can have more awareness. What was the actual motivating reason to take that course? And what what came about after taking the course? What did you learn? Mm. Yeah, it's good. I just saw one thing before I answer. I'd never heard the phrase of the financial flashpoints. I think that's really kind of interesting. I'm really kind of curious about what mine might be. I'll send you something. I'll put it in the show notes too. Dr. Brad Klontz has done some fascinating work. So a lot of it's rooted into our childhood about yeah. like the way money was or wasn't talked to. A lot of the social visual learning that we had around our child years. So it's fascinating research. But anyhow. Yeah. 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 I'm super interested in all of that. And, and part of the reason I'm interested in that relates to your question there about this work, sex, money, dharma. I had probably about three years or so before that gone to, you know, this learn to meditate thing, which was actually at the Buddhist center where I live in Brighton on the South coast of the UK. So my learning to meditate had been in a Buddhist tradition. And so I was kind of doing that and I was doing some meditation and I was reading a lot, like consuming a lot of that information, you know, like eating it like it was food, kind of just sort of reading it. And I guess so kind of bit curious, bit hungry, all of that. And it's like, oh, what can I do? I'm reading books. Oh, I'll do a course kind of thing. Uh, I don't know how the course found its way to me. It was pretty early on in the in the days of online courses. Uh, it was been more than 10 years ago now. So it was pretty early on, but somehow, you know, this course found its way to me. I can't remember exactly what the, the appeal was. I think I had some knowledge of the teacher who was leading the course. But and also I, th- I found the, t- the title very evocative. And I was really curious. Like, what does this mean? Work, sex, money, dharma. What it transpired was, it was like the giant objects of our life via a Buddhist sort of practice lens. So work, 
the stuff, all the stuff we started talking about at the beginning. What is work? Why do I do it? How do I do it? What is its role for me? Sex, all the stuff of relationships, how I interact. Well, you know, in a physical, uh, sexual way, but in an emotional way, you know, all the stuff around the energy around that. And then, of course, around money as well. So, like, these are like the giant objects of our kind of Western contemporary life, you know, the work that we do, the relationships that we have, the money. It was all saying, okay, let's explore these objects via the lens of Buddhist practice, via the lens of Dharma, as they would they would call it. So it really did kind of open up a, a kind of very significant thing for me. And I, the the money module in particular. So you know, this is like this is like it's early on in the in the day now. It was lots of these things of kind of online courses. So it was all pre-recorded video, right? So the teacher doing a little kind of piece to camera thing, and you know, I can't remember exactly what it was. You know, let's say like a twenty-minute teaching for each of the modules, some questions and things to reflect on, and then there would be. Uh, I can't remember. I think there was probably some sort of session where we we sort of came together. But essentially, it was a teacher talking to the video, right? So no real kind of interaction. On the money module, which was the third one, the recording began with, and I kind of remember this really clearly. So the, the recording began, so, you know, sort of flickers to life and the, the, the teacher's leaning right into the camera and says, you know, if I was to say to you, money, 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 what comes up for you? And it was like, fuck, a lot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> a lot. And it actually was one of the first times that I then really realized, to your point around the kind of fresh words, just how emotionally charged money was. You know, how deep these stories run how much you know for like for me you for me i think you were talking about sort of associating money with success maybe like for me money was security was one of the stories that i had and so all of this sort of stuff was then revealed so like just him posing that question leaning into the camera asking this it was like well wow you know all of this stuff started to get these little kind of just kind of interviews all of this this world was revealed essentially of just actually what money was and what our relationship to it was. And like I said, how emotionally charged it was and how it was then sort of influencing and shaping and dictating almost everything, right? About how I was running my company, the work I was doing. You know, it's it kind of manifesting kind of crazy ways. I'd see like, for me, money was about security. And so we would, uh, when I was running my company, because the association in my mind was money was about security. Like we had the biggest cash pile. I mean, that sounds ridiculous. We're not Apple. It was not a trillion dollars. But like, <laughs> you know, relative to our company size, mm -hmm. we had this just disproportionately large cash holding because the story in my mind was money was about security. And it made no sense for us to have a cash pile of that size compared to our, that amount compared to our size. But all of this stuff was kind of revealed by that question. And that kind of, with a few other things, kind of prompted a whole kind of avenue of exploration, really, which sort of started to kind of point me to, hold on a second, there's all of this stuff around money, which needs to be much more, or the opportunity is to much more fully understand, because as it is at the moment, it's shaping almost every decision that I make in kind of conscious or unconscious ways which is all kind of rooted in some sort of underlying kind of emotional drive, emotional energy, it makes sense for me to better understand some of this story, to better understand what's kind of going on. So at least 
so I can have some modicum of idea that I might have some sort of conscious control over the decisions that I'm making. So yeah, that money, 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 money uh, question was a was a hugely was apocalyptic. You know that true mm. definition of the word apocalypse, the idea that it it is a it's about revealing. Right. So for me, that question, money, 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 was apocalyptic. It was revealing actually what was going on behind the surface of everything else that we came to think was the important stuff around money. Wow. What a question. And, you know, I find it so fascinating that, like, before when you were mentioning about why you signed up, you were curious. The title, you were curious about it. I think you said it was a couple of years after you signed up for that meditation course. So you were starting to already embrace or cultivate or, or at least be aware of this pausing and reflecting where I feel like that question to someone who might have still been in the busyness of just trying to get things done would have been like, mm. oh, money, money, money. Like it did, might not resonate. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just want to bring that back in the, 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 the value of pausing, especially when we're trying to go towards our money relationships, because Going in there, and I feel like money is such a window into ourselves, into the unconscious feelings that we have about ourselves that we attach to money. But money can be a window into so much more around ourselves, how we think, how we hold relationships, and so forth. So mm. I'm curious. I want to get to your ebook, but before, I always wonder when we start to do this work to identify what, like yours, was security or safety. How has that, if anything, changed at all your relationship back with, I believe his name's Felix, your children, your kids, your family? It seems to me you've been able to detach to some degree, mm -hmm. safety and money. How has that at all impacted your family? Because it, it seems when I read online, you are a family guy. Yeah, another really good question. How has that kind of impacted that? And I guess, I don't know, actually. I'm not sure I know how it is. So I, I think I have a little bit more insight of the kind of rabbit holes that I would have a tendency to have gone down. So this thing around life security or having, you know, the idea of kind of a safety net, I'm kind of much more sort of conscious of that. I do reflect, sort of pause every now and then and go, what actually, what are the stories I am giving to my kids around money? And, you know, I'm not totally clear on what the answer to that is. Well, I guess that's another rabbit hole. Yeah. So you you wrote a ebook called Buddha on Board. And yeah. we've talked a lot about pausing. We've talked about Buddha within this conversation. So from your perspective, why do you feel like we would want to have, as the book suggests, Buddha on board? What value yeah, yeah. Was it, would it bring? Yeah, that, that idea that Buddha on the board was a little bit of kind of response to the question, if the Buddha was on our company board, right? And... A company board that might equally be like you know if you were if you're a one man company one person company you know if you the Buddha was your business partner equally it doesn't have to be like a formal thing like I'm you know some sort of Wall Street no it's a Buddha you know this, the Buddha is on that board it's this idea that you know if the Buddha was my business partner if the Buddha was helping shape the decisions of my company of the works that I did which kind of links to the you know growing out this question why do you work so it's asking well if the Buddha was my business partner. If the Buddha was on our company board, what would we do? How would we do it? You know, for me, how we work would be, you know, he would basically have a very, very strong point of view about how we work. And by that, I mean how much time we spend doing it, how much effort, what our relationship to it is, how it fits in with other parts of our lives, the work we did, what its intent is, you know, how useful our companies would be. And also there's a thing around money. Like the, the, there are, the Buddha taught, 
you know, lay people, people like us, you know, not monks, about a relationship to money. And in the Buddhist teachings, and this is actually, as my understanding, very limited, this, there are common teachings across all of the sort of main religions around this that actually, but in the in the Buddhist context, the Buddhist teaching was not that money was a problem. Actually, the Buddha did teach that actually increasing the money that you have kind of incrementally, slowly, is an important thing to do. There's a set of teachings called the numerical discourses, which are all about this, you know, that it is important to increase what you earn. It's important that you do that because in order to do it, in order to be able to do it, you need to draw on your creative capacities. You need to draw out your full capabilities. You need to be fully kind of focused on people who may benefit from the skills that you have. So there is a kind of, there is a, there is a creative act that precedes being able to increase your money. So these are, you know, the relationship between the work that we did, the, the work that we might do, how we might do that work, who we do that work for, what the point of our company is, how we operate it, how we manage, how we manage our money, how we manage people we work with. It felt to me that the Buddha would have a really strong and useful kind of guiding point of view that would actually make our companies much more generously spirited while still being soundly run and profitable and all of these things. It just kind of felt, it pointed to, it was a kind of, again, an, an exploration, a kind of a, an area of inquiry to go, actually, well, if the Buddha was on our board, maybe a lot of the problems that we have as a, whether they're ecological problems, whether they're political, whether they're social, whether they're economic, whether they're financial, actually a lot of the problems that we face would be less so if the Buddha was on your company board. You know, I, I recently had two authors who wrote What Would Buddha Do at Work? And in the chapter, they talk about money and they really dive into how, yeah, the Buddhist teachings weren't don't make money. Uh, in fact, he came from a lot of money. Yeah. It was more so after you have enough, continue making it, but give it back to your community. Exactly. Yeah. yeah and yeah, yeah. it's kind of coming full circle. We talked about Mark and Aniliski at first. Mm -hmm. Him and I once talked about this bathtub theory where like, if you fill your bathtub up after a certain point, the water just spills out and perhaps yeah. corporate earnings should be like that. You, you mm -hmm. fill up a certain bathtub amount and then it just goes out to the community. I like how you said, and it kind of speaks to what you just said, that your focus might shift from growth to change. Can you, uh, you kind of already elaborate on that, but you specifically chose growth and change on purpose. Can you just extend a bit more on shifting that mindset from growth to change and what significance that can have? So I've run small businesses, you know, relative small business for my whole kind of pretty much my whole working life. I do also do quite a lot of stuff now with people who are also trying to run their own businesses. But just so within our culture, right? The story of perpetual growth, which links a lot to money, of course, is one of the things that Mark and I were talking about. You know, there is a need for a story around perpetual growth when all, when you know, when almost all money is debt money, right? There is a need, of course, for perpetual growth that is baked into that system. So at that level, but also at a kind of at a personal cultural level, the idea that our companies are continually growing, right? It's just it's the story of our culture, isn't it? But of course, nothing in nature grows forever, right? I look out my window here, there's a range of really beautiful trees. They don't keep growing, right? They basically have a limit and they kind of know that limit. And that limit is determined by, you know, nutrients in the ground, access to sunlight, space, all of these kind of things. So nothing in nature grows forever. 
Yet, probably the most pervasive story about running a company is an idea of continual growth. So, because it's something that doesn't exist in nature, I think it's actually an incredibly destabilizing idea for people who are running their companies because it's an impossibility. You are effectively being asked to chase an impossible, an illusion, right? And so, for me, actually, if you can get people to go right. I'm not going to chase that, although that is the kind of noise of the culture. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try and organize myself to thrive on change. So if you go, well, it's not about growth. So I'm chasing, you know, constantly chasing the bottom of the rainbow, but I'm understanding that the context, the environment, which I mean like our work environment is a constantly changing thing. By definition, then there is a constantly presenting pool of opportunity, right? Which we just don't see if we are exclusively fixated on growth. So by putting that away and accepting that everything is always changing because that is really one of the only truths that and everything dies, accepting that everything is always changing, that's much more true than the idea of perpetual growth, but also built into that like we were talking about earlier, in a way if we're tuned to it is a constantly presenting pool of opportunity, a constantly presenting pool of creative response. And so that for me is part of my shift, and then the work that I do with other people is going. Okay, let's try and put that down. Much more. Let's try and let's try and embrace this idea of perpetual change and what that might present for us. Your tree analogy is is perfect. As as you know, we're talking about this distracting ourselves, where sometimes money can keep us busy. The growth is the same thing. We're just busy and we don't change. And I live in Edmonton, Canada, and if these trees didn't change. They wouldn't survive the summer or the winter, mm. the fall. And right, yeah, yeah, they're perpetually changing to the mm-hmm. environment. And if they just focused on growing as tall as they can, our winter would shrivel them up into nothing and they would yeah. <laughs> be non-existent. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I like that perspective. This is final question. Let's imagine you're anywhere in the world. Maybe it's the UK, but you're somewhere that brings you peace and you're at the end. We talk about endings, end of life. Mm-hmm. however old that is, and you're sitting on this front porch at this place that brings you peace. Maybe you're looking at a mountain, an ocean, lake, it doesn't matter, whatever brings you peace. And you decide to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned about a happy, healthy relationship with money. What would a theme mm-hmm. to that letter be? The thing which is sort of coming up for me, I'm kind of reminded of a debate that we had in my company, actually, with there was a period where we got a chairman involved for a range of reasons. And I remember we were on this corporate away day thing. And uh, the corporate, that sounds completely ridiculous. We were having, like the directors, we were away. We were doing a bit of planning session. And we were having this debate around the table. Or the, the facilitator was asking each of us director owners and then so the chairman, you know, what is the purpose of the company? And I offered my view, my business partner offered his view. And then the chairman who came from like, you know, real straight corporate background, he was like, well, the purpose of the company is to generate profit. And I was like, no, that's not what the purpose purpose of the company is. Profit is a byproduct of doing something useful, right? And so in a way, when I think about this, that was one of the first things that came up in thinking about that letter, not because of the literal thing around that, but it's like, the money, if there was a themes around money, it's like money is a byproduct. Money is a response to other things that happen. Money is a response to 
the work that we do. Money is a response to the contributions that we make. Money is a response to the connections that we make. In a way, how generously we give to, you know, we give time, we all of those sorts of things. So in a way, I guess if I was writing a letter, it would be to invite my grandchildren, as they would be, to kind of reflect back on their resources, on their capability, on their creative potential, and to trust in that as the guiding light, and in a way, let the money bit flow as a consequence. I guess that brings back money to its original form of a currency, where it's just a current that keeps flowing. Right. Yeah. Ben, thank you. This has been a very insightful and fun conversation for me. For listeners, if they're interested in hearing more what's going through your mind, <laughs> tell them about your your podcast, your website, Shanghai Live. Where can people <laughs> find more information about you? The main place to go will be to look, search up com, and all of my website and everything will be there. It's okay. not there, but it will be there by the time this goes live. So, so basically, search up buddhaontheboard.com. At buddhaontheboard.com, you'll find access to my podcast, which is a podcast called Peripheral Thinking. You'll also find links there to the other businesses I own, like the Buddhist platform you've spoken about called Sangha Live, which is a platform where we teach people how to meditate. There's kind of thousands of people congregating there now. But everything you'd need, all of the bits, if you're curious about what's going on in my head, my heart, my mouth, or whatever, go to buddhaontheboard.com and you'll find everything you need to know and don't need to know. <laughs> okay, we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. And again, thank you for your time. Hello, it's Sean here again. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to my conversations with our guest. These conversations fill me with joy. I thoroughly enjoy having them each and every week. If you are enjoying them, I would love if you can head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review and or a rating and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And if you haven't already, please sign up for our mailing list so you are notified when the next and latest episodes are out. Thank you so much. Take care and enjoy this wonderful song. Without a top, my wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.